I had uh, uh, this cool boyfriend. His name was Valrejan Bagosian. Would you, would you like to try and spell that for me? What's uh, ever? His first name is Varujan. V-A-R-U-J-A-N. His last name is Bogosian. B-O-G-H-O-S-I-A-N. We lived on the same street in New Britain. We walked to school every day. We came home from school every day. He was my best friend. Uh -huh. And he was a very accomplished artist. In fact, he is now enjoying uh, a reputation as a sculptor. He has been a professor of Dartmouth for the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that he never graduated from high school. He dropped out and joined the Navy. He wanted to go into the submarines, but <laughs> after the medical exams, they found that he suffered from claustrophobia. <laughs> <laughs> he had to settle for a destroyer, something of that nature. And he was in the South Pacific, and I was in Europe, and we corresponded. Huh. And we wrote long letters to each other, because we had the same interests in painting, uh, in uh, literature. Uh, we were both fascinated by the Surrealist movement, by the Cubist movement. Uh, people like Picasso, for example, were fantastic people. And even someone like Dolly, who nowadays is a clown, but in those days was, was considered a serious artist. Mm -hmm. And big news to boot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, people like Brock and Rouault. And, uh, uh, so that uh, we were rather involved with the avant-garde movement, but uh, I think that, uh, uh, of course, that movement was belonged more to the, the 20s than it did to the 30s and 40s. Yeah, right. It was. Uh, well, because of, because of, during the period of the war, I don't think that there was too much activity in the art world. Certainly not much in Europe. Uh, although I'm sure that a lot of it was going on underground. But we weren't too much aware of it. And uh, one of the things that you don't usually find in in uh, army stores is uh, our art magazines, for example. Mm. Uh, so that, uh, except for that correspondence I had with my friend Bogosian and with a few other friends, uh, there wasn't really much association with the art world. And so when you, uh, when you get out in 46, then what are you? What do you? Uh, what do you see as your options, or how do you feel about what are you going to do? Or you go back to New Britain, I assume. Oh uh, sure. Initially. Yeah. yeah. The uh, Gosh and I were more or less discharged about the same time. In fact, that whole our whole graduating class more or less came back. Uh, surprisingly enough, that uh, the graduate the class I graduated with, 19, the class of '44 from high school. Mm -hmm. Half of us ended up in Fort Knox. Huh. Right. But from what I understand is that most of them ended up in the armored infantry, and I think that I was the only one who ended up in the tank. Which again, I mean, fortune smiled on me because, in terms of army life, especially in terms of the war, uh, 
the tanks are preferable to the being a, uh, a grunt, you know. Yeah, right. So, uh, but in any case, we got, when we got back in 46, in the summer of 46, well, we hung around the town square, you know, ogling the girls and drinking and all that sort of stuff that young adolescents are apt to do. Although by that time we weren't adolescents, really. Right. You know, at 46, I was 20 years old. Uh, so we decided that we would go to college. And it was too late to apply to any prestigious school, not that we had to hope to get into any. Uh, graduates of New Britain High don't usually end up in Harvard or Yale. Mm -hmm. So instead we uh, enroll at the, uh, what was then called the New Britain Teachers College. New Britain Teachers College? Yeah, and now I guess it's called the Central College of Connecticut. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course we did this on a GI Bill. Right. And, uh, frankly, we didn't take that first year rather seriously. It was fun. Uh, we had, uh, <laughs> we took as many art courses as we could, and since the art department at New Britain Teachers College consisted of uh, two women and one effeminate male, <laughs> it was a rather limited uh, uh, department, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, getting some kind of education. But we got. I'm sure some of it rubbed off. Well, it's an opportunity to, to do some work uh, under whatever circumstances. Hey? Well, yes, we had at least, uh, we had a studio to work in, we had supplies to work with. Uh, we also took French, which was uh, an abysmal failure. <laughs> I took uh, a couple of writing courses, which was smashing success with uh, an old teacher, an old man by the name of Fowler. In fact, they brought him out of retirement, and he was another person who uh, encouraged me to write. Now this was a, a sort of creative writing, short creative. story oriented kind of a class. A creative, uh, but uh, his uh, the class, I, the, the course I had with him had to do with uh, uh, literary criticism. So what I wrote for him were mostly uh, critiques of uh, novels and biographies which I'm sure he was impressed with because uh, later years when I got to see him, you know, when I visited with him, he asked me how my writing was coming and I said I wasn't doing much, I'm doing painting. He was awfully surprised. Mm -hmm. Surprised I'd never paid much attention to the writing end of it, you see. But in any case, so we spent the first academic year at New Britain Teachers College. And then, of course, we're on to the next summer, what to do. Mm -hmm. the next summer. Jobs weren't really available. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't really care to have any kind of a job. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do, except I wanted to be an artist. Now, was your, uh, what was the, the situation with your family? This, was your father working again? Oh, yes. By that time, my uh, father was, uh, was working steadily. In fact, he had uh, enough money saved through the war that he bought a house, first house I think he ever owned in his life. It was a three-decker in New Britain. Mm -hmm. My father lived on the first floor, my oldest brother lived on the top floor, my youngest brother lived on the middle floor. 
but it was a so it it, it was a very homey, very family oriented situation. Mm-hmm. By that time, I had uh, a couple of nephews and nieces, so uh, it, it was a you know it was a nice situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the months that uh, I attended New England Teachers College, I lived with my father and mother. But in any case, the following summer, what could we do? Well, we heard from our friend Miss Carrier, mm-hmm. our former English teacher at high school, uh-huh. that the University of New Hampshire was offering a writing a writer's workshop uh-huh. with people like Ralph Humphreys and uh, uh, Robert Peter Tristan. Uh, Robert Peter Tristan. Tell us his last name. God, I can't remember. A stuffy man, pompous. People who were considered. Robert Peter Tristan Coffin, that was his name. And so Bugsy and I, that was my friend Bogosian's nickname, Bugsy. <laughs> so Bogosian and I hitchhiked to New Hampshire. So is this a summer workshop? This is a summer workshop. We enrolled in a workshop and had a grand time writing, playing. Uh, I got some encouragement from Coffin, even though I thought he was pompous. Mm-hmm. But I got more encouragement from uh, another teacher by the name of Toll, T-O-W-L-E. He was a truly wonderful man. And I fell in love with the campus. Is this in uh, Durham? Yeah. And after the summer session, I decided to stay on. Bugs even came back to New Britain. And uh, I wanted to enroll, but uh, obviously the enrollment possibilities were limited, and they were limited mostly to New Hampshire students. And so I decided I would live in Durham for six months. To, and be, then to qualify, sort of? That would qualify me as a, as a resident, and I would then enroll in school. I did that. I worked as a short order cook in one of the local drugstores. Got to know quite a few of the students and quite a few of the teachers in that six months period. So that by the time I enrolled, I was, in effect, one of, a member of the community. community. Yeah. Did, were you able to enroll in by the semester that started after Christmas, or was it no, I can't truly remember now, but probably. Something like that? Yeah, probably. Were you able to count the time you came up for the workshop? Uh, I was able to count that, and I was able to count the credits I had from New Britain teachers. And so I really came in more or less as a sophomore. Uh, no, I simply meant in the residency requirement, the, the time you'd spent in the summer already. Well, oh, so I, can't re- I, I can't remember that detail. But yeah, uh, anyway, okay. But anyway, I think I did come in uh, in that mid-year semester or whatever. And uh, I also joined a Sigma Beta fraternity at the university. Sigma Beta? Sigma Beta, yeah. It at one time was a national. But uh, the New Hampshire chapter broke away from the national because the bylaws prohibited Jews and blacks into membership. 
and the local members objected to that. So uh, the local membership broke away from the national and formed uh, a campus fraternity. Mm -hmm. And so that appealed to me. I also liked uh, the uh, fellows who were there. Mm -hmm. Were there uh, a lot of other uh, veterans? Uh, oh, sure. The place was full of veterans, except for the females, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting rather mixed because you'd have the 18, 18 year old females and then you'd have the old army veterans, the leches of 2025, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the girls, I'm sure, got a much broader education than we did at that point. <laughs> uh, and yeah. probably far more, far more fruitful to them, you'll pardon the pun, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Enough said, yeah. But Sigma Beta was uh, an interesting fraternity. The uh, in fact, all of the top editors of the uh, uh, of the college newspaper were members. Uh, we had uh, only a couple of jocks in our fraternity, a couple of the football players, and uh, I think we had uh, one of the stars of the swimming team or track team or whatever. But they were all heavy drinkers, all big party people. It was a grand and funny time. And uh, I must say, at some expense of the academic requirements and standards, mm -hmm. uh, although I felt that my education truly didn't come from the classroom, but it came from outside. For example, my uh, tenure on the uh, newspaper as a cartoonist and feature writer, I think I learned more doing that and I would have in, in the classroom. Was it a weekly? It was a weekly, yeah. And we were at, we were rebels. We rebelled against the New Hampshire legislature because at that time the, 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 that peculiar legislative body was, was uh, scrutinizing the faculty at the university trying to find communists and pinkos, you know. Mm -hmm. And they in fact did uh, uh, really uh, psychologically brutalized a couple of the professors, one of them who actually uh, um, did move to Ohio State, and one of them who weathered the whole thing and died a few years ago. Both of them, English professors, and both of them probably the best members of the faculty, which uh, was a true was it was was the cruel and the cruel shame of it all. Yeah. But the best members of the faculty were harassed and one of them was driven off campus. And in seems fact the, the students suffered for it. Yeah. Seems to have been the order of the day almost uh, really though. It seems so. Yeah. It seems so because uh I had one of these men as a as a professor Daggett, his name was. And he he taught a uh, a class in uh, uh, in eighteenth uh, century English literature, I believe. A fascinating man, and I learned more from him than I could learn from any other teacher on that campus, with the exception of Carol Toll, the writing teacher. And in fact, I paid more attention to the both of them than the rest of the faculty combined. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because in those years their English department was probably the strongest, with the exception of uh, perhaps the agriculture. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because New Hampshire started as a as an agricultural college. So in any case. Uh, did you continue working in the visual arts uh, in class? Yes, I. They didn't have my, a major in art, so I majored in English and I minored in art. But again, the art was, the art department was really badly organized, badly structured. The uh, head of the department was uh, uh, an architectural, uh, no, no, a naval architect, a really a dull, boring man. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, he was the one who taught art appreciation. Yeah, it seems as though most of the strong art departments of today in the last 10 years really only begun, uh, had begun to be organized at this point in time, the late 40s, early 50s, well, uh, most places. It, it well, when I left the university, it was uh, about the year I left the university then began to, to really yeah. uh, acquire some strength and some uh, uh, credibility as a department. So what kind of things were you actually doing in terms of the artwork? What was your own work like? How would you characterize it? Well, characterize it. I would say that I was searching for something. I was drawing, I was painting, I was sculpting. All pretty much within a sort of a standard representational mode at this point? Or right. Well, this, these were, in those days, they were required courses. If you major, if you minored in art, there were courses you had to take. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the courses you had to take was ceramics. Mm -hmm. And even though my ceramics teacher was, uh, was a uh, a distinguished and uh, very well-known potter, he was a lousy teacher. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after I made my first <laughs> three or four ashtrays, I figured I had it. <laughs> I wanted to go, I, I wanted to do ceramic sculptures. But that wasn't part of the course. Mm. You see? Pretty so, I, so I flunked ceramics. Mm. <laughs> you know, because I had these fantastic arguments with men. I'm I, I, didn't, I didn't want to make asterisks. I wanted to really sculpt with clay. And he says, no, because the requirements are such and such. So I just finally stopped going to class. Right. <laughs> you know, I felt that I could do better things with my time than to, you know, make silly asterisks. So anyway, I flunked ceramics. I did go into radio. I had a class in radio. I uh, wrote some things for the local radio station. Was it like in production for the radio kind of a thing? Well, yeah, but really, when I think back on it, really a sophomoric level. Mm -hmm. It was uh, a radio for the, just for the community, for just for Durham. I don't know, it was five watts or mm -hmm. probably not more than that. But in any case, the things I did mostly at the University of New Hampshire had to do with writing and uh, cartoons for the paper. And so I would. I stayed in Durham for about uh, well up to about 1949, I believe. Well, let's say if you would have started around the middle of the 47-48 school year, and then were you there like for only one complete school year, or maybe for two complete? School Almost years? two complete. So sometime in the middle of the. I think I left in the middle of my senior year. Which would have been the the forty nine fifty year. Yeah. Right around the end of the. Yeah. Well, I, I actually didn't left. I didn't leave. I I was actually. Oh, you actually uh, had. 
I was on probation for one semester, and I made up my marks, and I was on probation next semester, and then they said, well, we think you better leave. So uh, I stayed in Durham, I think, for that last summer. I lived in the frat house. Yeah, summer 1950? No, it would have been the summer 49, I believe. And uh, then I came back, then I came to Boston. Why Boston? Just because it was handy? Because it was here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the point was that uh, uh, all those uh, years that I spent in Durham, I mean, I would hitchhike to the Britain on weekends to see my family, to see my friends, see my friend Bergosian especially. Mm -hmm. um, and we sort of uh, talked about our future, what the hell we do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially since uh, we still had GI time left, right, and we still had aspirations of becoming painters and sculptors or whatever. Right. So, uh, when I left Durham, mm -hmm. I had sort of prearranged. With, uh, well, Bagosia knew of my plans. Mm -hmm. So I came to Boston, my final apartment. And uh, we decided that we would uh, enroll in the uh, Vesper George School of Art. And we were joined by another one of our friends from New Britain, Robert Eshoo. How do you spell E-S-H-O-O. And he is now the supervisor or the director or whatever his title is of art education for the Courier Gallery of Manchester, New Hampshire. So we, three of us, enrolled at the Vesper Joy School of Art. This would have been in the fall of 49? Something like that. And of course, as with other schools, Vesper George was filled with veterans. And so that the main school, which was on St. Patrol Street, was completely overflowed. And since these schools never rejected any applicant, they rented space at the old, uh, oh, what was it? It was a hotel on the corner of Clarendon and Boylston Street. And they took over the whole first floor for classrooms. And that's where we attended. That's where we had our classrooms. The unfortunate thing about the situation there was that uh, the hotel bar and coffee shop was directly underneath. Mm -hmm. And so that we would usually begin our day about eight or nine in the coffee shop and we would retire to the bar by 11 and have a couple of drinks and we'd go upstairs to class and spend about three or four hours in class and uh, and retire back to the bar. So as you can see, it was hardly <laughs> conducive to studying. Conducive to studying. Uh, although some work was accomplished, I must admit. But frankly, the schools just didn't give a damn. I mean, they really didn't. And so we were just passing 
time. Yeah. Until our GI Bill expired. And after the first year, the GI Bill did indeed expire. So you spent the equivalent of an academic year there, but 49-50 school year, probably. Yeah, without... Uh, well, what we did get out of that mm -hmm. was an association with a couple of uh, our teachers, uh, which was uh, uh, beneficial because, again, we uh, were introduced to uh, other art movements. Uh, our field trips that took us to museums and places like that, again, we know. became acquainted with Boston, too, of course. We became acquainted with Boston. We became acquainted with tradition in Boston. We, we got to know the galleries in Boston. And through the galleries, we got to know many of the artists, the people who were working in town. And so even though the school itself didn't offer us very much, but indirectly, all these connections came our way. There was one watercolor teacher by the name of John Wingate Parr, who uh, was more influential on Bogosian than he was on me. Uh, watercolor wasn't especially my medium, but it was Bogosian's. And so Bugsy learned quite a bit from him. But you have to understand that with that kind of association, an awful lot of our, uh, an awful lot of the student-teacher relationship went on after class hours, mm -hmm. sure. on weekends, you know. Uh, so that uh, uh, that kind of relationship was uh, far more useful than a classroom atmosphere would ever be. So even though I, you know, laugh at uh, school, it was a productive year. It introduced me to uh, the, uh, as I say, to the gallery people. I started to work for Margaret Brown. She had a gallery on Darkness Street. Now, did you start doing that while you were still sort of as an uh, adjunct to going to school? Kind of oh, thing, no, no, or no. Right this, after? This, came, this came probably a year or so after that. You mean a year uh, after you'd been out? Yeah. The point was that I had the introduction. What mm -hmm. wasn't available then was an opening in the gallery. Margaret Brown was the name of the woman who owned and ran the gallery? Right, it was called the Margaret Brown Gallery. In the meantime, after that academic year, I went back to my short order profession. So I'm just trying to get some sense of the chronology. You were 49, 50 school year at the Vesper George School. And That's probably, about right. Probably sometime in 51 you would have started working, or maybe even the 51, 52 season you would have worked for Margaret Brown. Uh, well, it probably was more like the 50, 51. Yeah. Um, so you were only, summer you were doing the short order business and uh, well it wasn't just the summer it, it was uh, sometime earlier on than that for a few months before that as well mm -hmm. um, because I don't think I went to work for Margaret until sometime in uh, January or mid-season later on what did you uh, what did you do at, the, at that car um, well just about everything you know I made frames uh, swept the floor I uh, helped hang exhibits uh, you know mm -hmm whatever a handy boy would do in the gallery. I mean, she was a, a strong-willed woman. She she ran the show. Were you the only other employee? No, there were a couple of others. A couple of others? Yeah. It's a fairly large operation, in a sense, then. Well, yeah, but she had she was a top gallery in Boston at the time. And she uh, showed people like Alexander Calder. Ah, okay. Uh, and 
uh, who else? Well, some of the avant-garde people of that period. Uh, yeah, that gives me sense. I think that uh, she might have had a Jackson Pollock show. Probably one of the first I'd ever seen. So, uh, I can't say that it was a happy relationship because she was very difficult to get along with. Mm. And I think I stayed with her for only about six months. And, uh, but in any case, what I, <laughs> one thing came to my mind, uh, that year after Vespa George, the three of us, uh, Bogosian, Eshu and I, decided that we would try the museum, the Boston Museum School, right? And one of the requirements was to prepare a portfolio of drawings and whatnot. So we did, and we submitted them, and in due course, we got our notices. Bob Yeshi was accepted, Bogosian and I were rejected with a note that said, yours is not the kind of work we'd like to encourage. <laughs> <laughs> not just a rejection, but really laying it on. <laughs> yeah. Huh. But, uh, I mean, I think uh, it's in terms of, as far as I'm concerned, probably just as well for them. Mm -hmm. But I think that they were sorry that they rejected someone like the Belgian. Yeah. <laughs> because he's now a, truly a star, and it would have been for them something wonderful to have him included among the alumni. But after I got through with Margaret Brown, I went to work for Hyman Swetsoff. Now, how do you spell his last name? S W E T. Z O F F. Okay. Hello. Hello. Can I come in? Sure. Let me, uh... Okay. Um... Did you go right to work for him after uh, the next season, essentially? About, I would say. I think we, uh, Bogosian and Bobby and I, and a couple of other of our friends, and uh, along with James Wingate Parr, we went to uh, Provincetown for that summer. We rented a house, and uh, so we stayed for the, we stayed there for the summer. And I think it was after that summer that I came back. We all came back, in fact, to Boston. And Bobby went to uh, uh, the museum school. Bugsy began to paint seriously. I went to work for Switzerland. Now, at this point, did you have any feeling that you were... I mean, were you becoming more seriously interested in the idea of, a, of the gallery business itself, or had that really not yeah, occurred to no, you? No, no, it hadn't, really. And what, what role was your own work playing in, well, in your was, life at this point? Well, I was uh, painting and drawing at the time. Uh, I had... Uh, I was dabbling in sculpture, I should say. I really wasn't doing anything seriously in sculpture. But I was painting. And... Uh, Did you have any success at all in terms of any kind of uh, well, not show really. or sales well, no, or I your own work at all? I sold a few things privately, but I didn't uh, have any exhibitions. I never planned for any, I never tried for any. Uh, I think probably about that time, uh, 
the idea was occurring to me that maybe I wasn't that good an artist, <laughs> or at least I didn't have the proper motivation. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I didn't have the discipline, whatever. Uh, so, uh, uh, I suppose uh, I concentrated most of my work with the gallery. And you were with him for three years, I think? About, roughly. Three seasons? About. And uh, again, I did just about everything that uh, a hired hand is supposed to do. This was a smaller operation, I take it? Much smaller. He's just, uh, he and I and his brother, Seymour. Mm -hmm. His brother, Seymour, was a framer. So, uh, I mean, I helped in the frame shop, I helped in the gallery, wherever there was anything had to be. Any additional help had to come, I... You were it. That, I was it. Yeah. So, which was fine with me, because uh, I enjoyed working with Seymour. I enjoyed making frames, I enjoyed installing exhibitions. In fact, uh, Hyman put up an Otze exhibit, which was one of the first that I had ever seen. Huh. He showed uh, a few photographers. He showed a local fellow, Benjamin George Montgomery, who worked with an 8x10 camera at the time. Where did he get the Otze show? From Bernice? Probably. You don't. You weren't aware? No, I, no I didn't. Uh, I wasn't privy there to that kind of information. Probably from Bernice. Would have almost had to have been, really. Probably, yeah, I'm sure of it. So I had my first introduction to Ajay there. But he showed uh, people like Chalicha. Uh, God, I can't remember. But he really had some very good exhibitions. And in terms of uh, the gallery standards in Boston, he was probably next to Margaret Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, now was this was this a living? This was all you. I mean, this supported you. It was your sole means of support. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those days you didn't it didn't take much to live. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And everything was much cheaper, so didn't really have to have much money. And uh, I think finally towards uh, about fifty-three, I believe it was or so. Uh, I finally broke with. Hyman, uh, mm -hmm. I'm just saying here, you would have worked for him probably the 51, 52 season, 52, yeah, 53, 52, 53, 54 season. No, 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 and uh, of course the idea was how to do it, I didn't really have any money. And uh, since I had been by the, become by that time a rather skillful picture framer, mm -hmm. I began to make picture frames on my own in my bedroom. Because at that time I shared an apartment with uh, Stephen Trafanides. Uh-huh. Now, how, who is he in this scene at this point? Uh, I mean. He's obviously one of the people you show later from the list. Well, he was primarily a painter, but he also began to photograph about that time. Uh, you just met him through the connection of painting people in Boston? Sure, he exhibited with Margaret Brown. Oh. He was one of her stable painters. Was he, is he a good deal older than you, or was he just... No, he's about my age. Very successful at this point. Yeah. 
well, he was very, very, he was a very talented painter, and uh, in a traditional sense, he uh, a very accomplished painter, a very aggressive, uh, good businessman, I would say. Mm -hmm. So that uh, success came to him, that that kind of success came to him rather early. By the time I knew him, he had uh, at least one successful exhibition, if not two, mm -hmm. with Margaret. Uh, so he and I shared an apartment, and I started making picture frames until uh, my business got to be too big for that bedroom, mm -hmm. and so I took over 161. Now, when you say you took over, I mean you were were you you were in the area, or you? Well, we lived on the corner of Dartmouth and Newbury, uh -huh. over Joe's last restaurant. Mm -hmm. That's where Steve and I had the apartment. And uh, so when the first floor of 161 became available, I borrowed uh, $600 from a friend and uh, started business. You mean to, to lease the space there to? Yeah, 161. And so I started a, a frame shop in the gallery together. Uh -huh. Because I knew damn well I could never make a living selling pictures. Mm -hmm. So for the first couple of years, the frame shop, well, actually, the frame shop lasted for about 10 years. But uh, for the first couple of years, I was doing most of the work myself. And then uh, I. Uh, well, I had known my first wife by then already, Marie. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so after my lease expired to 161 and the landlord wouldn't renew it, Marie and I together decided that we would take a chance and go over to 172, mm -hmm. which was a large, much larger place, far more expensive. But it gave us much more room. It gave us a, larger frame shop, a larger gallery, and that other room which we eventually turned into the photography room. You know. mm -hmm. so, uh, so you were at 161 for two seasons? Uh, 54, 55, and 55, 56? Probably. It's 57 is when you open at 172, I think. Well, then it must have been that I opened up at 61 about 55 then. Ah, okay, because it was just two seasons. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I really can't remember what yeah. the, what the years are. Well, just to give it roughly. Yeah, the I mean, relationship. I never paid attention to that. Yeah. Kind of nonsense. So it's very difficult for me to. You know. So in any case, uh, we did move to one seventy two. And Marie came in and she took over some of the administrative duties. That's why you probably noticed in the file. The correspondence, she's. The correspondence on the letters. To or from her. Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was also able to uh, hire a couple of students to uh, help me with the framing. And by that time, I got to know many more artists. And I was able to. Uh, um, Acquire a, shall we say, a stable. Sure. Uh, I hate that word, but. Yeah, well, it suggests that the, 
that the contents of it are somehow prized thoroughbred animals of no particular intelligence but either great that, either that or it's full of horse manure yes however you want to interpret the stable roster or something is maybe right. a better word well, roster is much finer, much more refined word I suppose and surprisingly enough I can't remember many of them that's how distinguished they were <laughs> then and how distinguished they are now well which isn't really true because uh, uh, Jack Kramer and Morton Sachs. Morton Sachs, I know. Were two of the people. Uh, they uh, are both now on the uh, on the faculty at Boston University. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug Hubler, who is now one of the top conceptual artists. I think I've seen his name. Who at that time was a <laughs> was an abstract expressionist. Mm -hmm. He. Uh, I didn't know it then, but he had. I, but I've been watching his career since those nine, those one seventy two years, and uh, mm -hmm. I've discovered that he has that fantastic facility to to uh, to change with the, to, to the wind, you know. <laughs> to that, be fashionable, uh, huh? He becomes trendy about a month before the trend takes form. You see. Really, really hits. <laughs> so it's uh, one. I suppose if one doesn't look too closely, one might consider him a trendsetter, but. On the other hand, one might also consider him a trend follower. I don't know. Uh -huh. But in any case, what he's doing now is of little interest to me because when it comes to conceptualism, about the time that I was with Tsuetsov uh, and about the time I uh, began my own gallery and for all practical pur purposes abandoned my own artistic career, at that point I decided that I was truly the greatest conceptual artist ever, you see. Because in a sense that, all right, all of these great concepts are in my mind, you see. But why should I put them down on paper? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because the conceptuals are supposed to be anti-object, right? anti-arch. Mm -hmm. right. But they can't survive without the object. <laughs> right. I mean, even though, you know, you might have seen some of the, uh, some of the work that they've done in which... Uh, uh, all they would have, for example, would be a typewritten sheet of instructions how to make a painting. Right? right. There's no painting, obviously, but there are instructions of how to make one. But they end up with the object. Right. Well, to my and they do a lithograph edition of the, of the typewritten right. instructions. Right. Okay. Which is But to my sale. mind, I was a truly the the, <laughs> the pure the, the, the pure conceptualist because there it was. Yeah. The concepts were there, <laughs> and I didn't end up with any object. <laughs> Your life the work. That's about as anti art as you can be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it also carries the, the, the idea of art to, a, to an absurd position. Yeah, really. So, so, in any case. So, you, at 172, I, I take it then you begin to have some real success in the actual picture selling business. Uh, yeah, basically. I, had, uh, I showed people like uh, Jonah Kinnickstein and. Who? Jonah Kinnickstein, Norman Rubington. Neil Wellington, uh, uh, Bertrand Dorney, a French painter. In fact, he was the first painter I exhibited, I believe. Or no, at least, no, he wasn't. I gave him his first show ever. And he was a French painter. From, he was from Paris. Came to this country, married an, uh, a girl from Newton. And while they were here on their honeymoon, he showed me his paintings, and I liked them, so I showed them. And now he's got some success in... Uh, in uh, in France in Paris, he is uh, Christopher is my son Christopher's godfather. Mm -hmm. 
we still correspond after all these years. Uh, he's not doing any painting, but he's uh, become a rather successful printmaker. How do you spell Dorney? Uh? D-O-R-N-Y, Bertrand Dorney. And his wife, Anne, Anne Walker Dorney, she's successful too as a printmaker. And they've lived in Paris all these years since that first show of his at my gallery at 55. Uh, who else did I show? I showed Nina Boland, a very good uh, draftsperson. Draftsperson, I hate that. Isn't that Draftsman, she was. <laughs> so, uh, uh, George, uh, Billy Georginis, William Georginis, a very good painter. Uh, Howard Schaefer, another good painter I showed. Uh, who else was there? Oh God, I can't remember. Well, we don't need to recall all the names of these people. Well, in any case, it's, I mean, I'm trying to recall it from my own yeah. sense of, uh, uh, how shall I say, of, uh, of presence or of uh, identity or whatever. Uh-huh. But those were good years. Would the... Um the, the point in time, the 59 season where you begin to show photographs, be a sort of indication that um, about that time you had pretty well stabilized the situation in terms of people you'd hired who were taking over most of the framing business and some success with, these, uh, with the painters and so on, and that you felt able to uh, go on into that. Um, is that, I mean, well. does that make any sense to say that? Obviously, the success in the business was gradual. Sure. Uh, in fact, when I took over that 172 space in 57, uh, I couldn't really afford the rent for that place. I wasn't making enough money on the pictures and on the frames. And so that room that was eventually devoted to photography, I rented that space out to Marie Cassindus. Hmm. Because at that time, she was a designer. Uh, she designed uh, fabrics for uh, Carter's uh, sleepwear, babywear, whatever. One of the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the Carter's children uh, clothing manufacturers or whatever. And uh, she was struggling too and uh, trying to make a living. Uh, and she was just then getting into photography under the influence of Chafanidis. I think she uh, got some of the basic black and white stuff from him, uh, even though he, uh, he, in, he in fact got his from John Brooke. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though Steve never did any of his own processing, but he did have a good eye. And, uh, and even though I gave him a couple of shows, I was sort of uh, skeptical about the fact that he didn't make his own prints. Uh -huh. That sort of bothered me. Was Brooke um, establishing himself? Uh, he has a business down the street here, or did uh, a couple of years ago. He's still here. At that time, he was to, on, towards the lower part of Newbury. And uh, uh, he had a couple of shows with, uh, with uh, the Canadians Gallery. 
uh, but he was the only photographer they showed, and that was might have been every other year. Mm-hmm. But John, by that time, had a very good reputation as a portrait photographer. He uh, he served time as a uh, the uh, uh, chief photographer for the uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra, both here in Boston and at Tanglewood. And uh, it was through his association with the people in the music world that he has got a truly fine uh, portfolio of portraits of some of the great musicians. Not just the classical people, but the jazz people as well. Mm-hmm. Because he was very much involved with uh, with the jazz group, uh, because at that time Boston was quite good, quite heavy in jazz. Uh, it was through Brooks that I met Dave Brubeck and uh, uh, his quartet. Uh, are you quite a follower of jazz yourself, or were you then? I used to be. I was at that time. I used to go to all the night spots that featured jazz, the Hi-Hat and, uh, oh, I don't know, Storyville and uh, a few other places that I can't uh, recall now. Murphy's Cafe, I guess. And, oh, no, there are quite a few places in that town. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Dizzy Gillespie and uh, uh, George Ween, who was uh, the impresario of the Newport Jazz Festival. George, in those years, uh, owned uh, the Storyville, which was a jazz club. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the greatest experiences in those years was to. Uh, be allowed to sit in on an after-hours jam session with Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Oh, what a fantastic experience that has been on all through the night till about five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, we were at 172 with Marika Sindis. Let's, um, maybe this is a good point to look a little bit at the, the list we were able to come up with from, from 172 um, and uh, talk more a bit more specifically about some of these people. Um, the first person who I really had a question about was simply uh, was uh, Jules Aaron. You mentioned, I believe you said you, when we talked earlier, that um, you showed him at 161. Uh, or that was your recollection. Um, does that sound right? Probably, yeah. Because I've known Jules for all those years. Now, I, I um, the only thing I was able to find on him at all was a uh, a book of uh, travel pictures or some right, kind of little right. little sort of how to do it kind of book. Right. And I at one point had him confused with a Leo Aarons who was a New York commercial photographer. No, no. But, uh, Jules, uh, Dr. Jules Aarons is an astrophysicist. And, uh, but he was a, a very, I think, a very good photographer. And his big deal was to photograph the West End and the North End of Boston. The West End is now demolished. It's now high-rise apartments. It's no longer... Well, at that time when Jules was photographing, it was a truly... A, 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 in a sense, a true neighborhood composed mostly of uh, uh, the lower-class Jews, some Italians, uh, some... Uh, uh, I think there might have even been some Poles there, some, and... Uh, some Greeks, things of that kind of, which was a mixed community. Is this and the area now that's a sort of, there's the Storo Drive Rotary and Cambridge Bridge and the Mass General Right, it's just, just in back of the Mass General. Yeah. That was the west end of Boston. A wonderful 
warm place mm-hmm. in terms of the people who live there, in terms of the ambiance. It was it, it had an old country atmosphere about it, you see. But that's now demolished, and those ugly buildings are in its place. The North End is still more or less intact, and Jules photographed there. And Jules, as an astrophysicist, of course, uh, very respected in that field, uh, traveled quite a bit around the world. Did he work at uh, Harvard or somewhere like that, uh, Ron? No, he works for the, uh, I think, for the United States government. Uh, and uh, I never did ask, and he never did volunteer to tell me where the hell he was based. <laughs> and you don't know? No, I don't know. I, that aspect of it doesn't interest me. Yeah. But as I say, he traveled quite a bit down in South America, down in Europe, Asia. And he'd always come back with some fascinating photographs. Because Jules, even though he doesn't uh, uh, practice the concept of pre-visualization as uh, Western Adams might, when Jules goes, he shoots as many rolls as he possibly can, comes home and immediately develops the negatives. And then in the summer months, he prints Maybe it's the winter months, I can't recall now. But in any case, he usually reserves a month for himself to print. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, in those days, it was always a fantastic thing to wait for that month. And because he'd come back with some very interesting pictures. And uh, uh, I've admired him for that. Because... Uh, he understands, I think he's a realist about his position in photography. He's a realist about his position in physics. Uh, and so that he doesn't live that kind of frustrated life that so many other photographers do, who try to make a living and at the same time practice photography. Mm. So that he, you know, he realized that he had to, in a sense, develop two different personalities. And he's very happy with both. And uh, uh, even though some of his pictures might not appeal to, uh, uh, how shall I say, some of the, uh, the mysticists in, 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 in photography, he's still, I think, a very good photographer. Is his work sort of in, uh, I don't know, from the, there were one or two in the Rodrigo Vera section, I think we looked at from later, so. And my my sense just is that he's kind of in the uh, Cartier Bresson to Cortez sort of street yeah, to people right, kind right, of mode. Right, right, right. He, 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 you know, he's not happy in the studio working with a a large format camera. He usually uses a Rolly. Uh-huh. And perhaps a thirty-five. But uh, I suppose if you had to pigeonhole him in any way, you might call him a social documentarian. Hmm. I suppose that's about as good a title as any. Mm-hmm. Uh, How did you come to meet him, if he's, uh, I mean, being well, in physics, uh, primarily? Well, he was always involved with the art community. Uh, because most of the, uh, uh, well, I didn't know too many photographers in those early years. Uh, I did know Jules, I did know Steve, I did know John. Uh, but uh, I don't remember any others, really. And so, from my point of view, it was logical. I liked his pictures. 
and uh, I've always run the gallery on a premise that I show what I like, mm -hmm. regardless of whether whatever it might be, paintings, sculpture, graphics. So that, uh, in the same sense, I like Steve's pictures as well. And uh, so, you know, it, it seemed logical for me to show those people at that time. And then when I moved to 172, uh, with uh, Marie coming in as a, a sort of a partner, I suppose. We weren't married at the time, but uh, we lived together. Uh, and she was a friend of Irene Schwachman's. Uh-huh, which is how you... All right. And that's how I got to know Irene. And uh, we would meet socially. Uh, and Irene, I think, uh, did a subtle job on me in terms of orientation towards photography. Uh-huh. And uh, she... Uh, whatever arguments she had were really quite compelling. At about, about, at about the same time, I got to meet Carenza. Who had just come for his first job out of school, basically? Probably. Or? And I got to meet Captain Negro. And uh, a couple of other photographers whom I can't recall now. And uh, um, so that all of these things began to take shape. Sort of work together. Sort of work together. The, uh, the things that Irene was telling me, the pictures that I had begun to see from Carenza and, and Captain Negro, uh, the books that Irene introduced me to, uh, that, that Captain Negro introduced me to, so that all this stuff began to take shape. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's, let's talk a little bit um, uh, about Irene Schrockman, because mm -hmm. she's uh, obviously been a sort of a person involved in photography in this area for quite some time. Very much so. Yeah. What is, uh, how does she, what do you know of her uh, initial coming into photography? Uh, have you ever learned I don't anything? know anything about it. She just was someone who was already involved She was in sort it. of involved in it already, and how she ever got involved in it, I just don't know. Hmm. I have to go ask her. Which is, uh, I mean, when I think back on it, it's really surprising that I don't know. Because it's really, I mean, though it's by no means an ancient history still, it, it, this, the f development of photography has been such that it seems at this point in time we're talking about now, 54, 57, it's still a very, uh, um, very much a very small group of people who are seriously interested in it, in, Obviously, right. in the way in which it's developed. Sure. So it's, it's curious that she wouldn't, I would think she must have been, been somehow at some point connected with someone else, some other person possibly, or something where she would have gotten her... Well, I don't know. I suspect that... Uh, I think she was trying to do some stuff on her own. I think that she certainly was far more acquainted with the literature than I was at that time. Because, frankly, my literature at that time consisted mostly of uh, books on art, on painting and sculpture, not so much on photography. Mm -hmm. uh, there really wasn't that much of it to begin with. True, yeah. With the exception of some of the Western books and the Adams books, and perhaps uh, an early edition of Newhall. Early, uh, early Newhall, yeah. Uh, in Brassai, maybe. But Brassai came out, what, 59, was it? Or, or Paris Nightlife, or whatever. 
Well, but in any case, there wasn't that much of it at the time. Uh, oh, Bernice's book, obviously. New York scenes came out in what, 39 or 40? 39. So, uh, uh, so through her, I decided that why not? Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, uh, the business itself was progressing. We were making more money. And uh, I decided that we could indeed take over that front room as we were running to Marie. Mm -hmm. to send it and uh, make that into a photography room. And so you planned the whole first year, laid that all out in advance, obviously. Well, I laid it on, on Irene. Ah. I said, if you want to do all the footwork, if you want to do all the preliminary investigations, then I will, you know. Okay, well, see, here, here was the question I was aiming at, and this partially answers it, is that to start, for example, with Aaron Siskin, who was the first show, mm. suggests a kind of familiarity with the whole photographic community that um, I was wondering how you had acquired that in, in this space of time here. And well, I guess the answer is that you didn't totally acquire it all no, at that one time. I did not, no. It was gradual, there's no question about it. But with Irene, it more or less came all in one lump. It's a package. <laughs> in the package. And it, it uh, you know, even though I had, I had been familiar with photography to some extent, uh, through uh, what I had seen at Sweatshops and through what I had seen at uh, some of the other galleries. Uh, and uh, uh, I wasn't that familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Because even at that time, and even though I was still dabbling in photography myself, uh, my prime concerns were painting and sculpture and graphics. So uh, when Irene came along with her package, uh, again, it seemed very logical to me. And I was just, the thing that bothered me at that time was that we immediately had uh, some conflict in terms of point of view. You and she? Yeah. Which pictures do I like? Which mm. pictures that she likes? Which people does she think we ought to show and which people do I think I ought to show? Uh, and so that the introduction that I had to the, to the work of so many people actually came from books, which, uh, you know, it didn't take me long to discover that that's a poor way of being introduced to photography. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing that saved me, I think, at that time, was that I'd actually seen some prints of Caponegros and of Carenza, and they were beautiful. And so I was convinced that, indeed, if these people are able to come up to that kind of a standard, then why shouldn't I show them? See? And even though I was familiar with their images only from books or magazines, mm. uh, it seemed logical to me. Because as I said earlier, I never had that kind of bias against photography. Mm -hmm. When you um, undertook...